And the other is in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus quoting the passage that's in Isaiah. So we're going to do Isaiah 29, verse 13. And then Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord said, Because this people drew near with their words, and honor me with their lip service, but they removed their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. And Jesus said, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Read my lips is the phrase made famous by President Bush when he was a candidate for the presidency. His lips said, no new taxes. And some people were disappointed and frustrated when he agreed to legislate taxation to increase, to balance the budget. I suppose that There are times when you can't trust what someone says with his lips. That's always been a problem. It was the problem in ancient Israel. And God said, they honor me with their lips, but they didn't mean it in their heart. It was the problem that Jesus confronted in the the Pharisees. And he said, you have all the right language and you have all this verbiage, and you talk, and that's all it is, talk. And they came under his most most scathing condemnation, or he said in essence, I'm not interested in reading your lips. I want to see a difference in your life. Shortly before his death, Joseph Sittler, eminent theologian, was asked by Martin Marty, what he would say with regard to how the church is to be reformed. He replied simply, watch your language. I guess he meant that if the church is to be reformed, it needs to be careful about what it says with its lips. I submit to you that the people of God need to say something. Now to say, watch your language, is not to say the church is never to say anything. Because the people of God have been given a message, a word that the world needs to hear. We need to say something. A long time ago, Martin Luther used to call the church the mouth house. What he meant by that was that deposited within the family of God is a message the world should hear. Talk is all we hear. Millions of words are being spoken every hour. Talk, talk, 
is what you hear on radio or television. I'm told that the most popular radio shows now are not rock music shows, but talk shows. The difference between the world and the church is that the world has the words and the church has the word. We need to say something to the world. The old definition of evangelism or personal soul winning is one beggar telling another how to find bread. I still think that's a good definition. My question is, what if the beggar doesn't want to tell the other beggar where to find bread? Henry Thoreau was sitting by Walden Pond watching a group of workmen build a power line across that beautiful part of the world. He watched it for a long time and mused about it. Finally, he interrupted one of the workmen and said, what are you doing? He said, well, we're building a power line from Texas to New England. He said, why? And the man said, well, so the people in Texas can communicate with the people in Vermont. And Thoreau said, what if the people in Texas don't have anything to say to the people in Vermont? It's a good question. If the definition of sharing the gospel is evangelism, what do you, if you call somebody who shares the gospel a witness, an evangelist, what do you call the man who doesn't? And so a medical missionary from Africa was sitting at a banquet in his honor in London, and he had been placed beside a woman of high um, sophistication and and aristocracy and she was trying to think of something to say to this medical missionary and finally she thought of some good question she said sir is it true that you are a missionary he looked at her and said is it true madam that you're not and when they told James and John never to say another word about Jesus they said, we cannot but talk about the things we've seen and heard. The church needs to say something. Now, it's the first sermon of the new year, so I must be indulged at this point. The church needs to say a word about some of the stuff that's happening in this country. Somebody said, I think he was right, that it's time for us to take this country back from the pimps and the prostitutes and the thugs. And we complain about the crisis of public school ed education that's in public school education. Let me tell you something. You just notice how many people ever show up at a public school meeting. And we talk about the problems that exist in the, in, the, in the youth in America and the, tra and, the, and the pressures they're under. Let me say to you that we've been trying to get somebody to teach a ninth and 10th grade boys class for months. It's time we said something about what's happening in this world. And we can sit back and let it happen and we'll have only ourselves to blame. Chuck Colson talks about a woman in Broward Prison, a maximum security unit in Florida by the name of Joanne Andrews. She's spending five years in this maximum security prison in Florida for her part of a, in a protest against abortion. 
five years in maximum security. And the next day, two men convicted and sentenced for murder, and they're a part in this murder, before the same judge were sentenced to four years in prison. Said Chuck Colson, I was asking Joanne Andrews one day, what caused her to get involved in these things that were happening around her? And she said, well, when I was a young girl, I was out one day, my, my cousin and I were out, and she fell in this raging stream and was drowning. I couldn't swim, she said. And I thought to myself, if I dive in and try to save her, we'll both drown. And I was terrified. And then she said, a greater terror came over me that day. It was the terror, the fear of doing nothing. And so I jumped in and I saved her. Let me tell you what's going to help this country. It's when the people of God are, get to a, a place where they're terrified, they have a fear of doing nothing. It's time we said something about the condition we live in this world. The book of Judges is the story, the record of God's people from the time of the death of Joshua to the birth of Samuel. And it describes the cycle of history that went on in that period of time that kept repeating itself. They would sin and turn away from God to idolatry. They would be punished. They would suffer. In their suffering, they would cry out to God and ask for help, and He would send a judge. And these judges were usually military leaders that would lead these wars against the neighboring nations and and, and set them free from their bondage. And then there would come this period of peace and prosperity. And during this time of peace and prosperity, they'd turn from God and the cycle would begin again. And that's the story of the book of Judges until you get to the last four chapters. In the last four chapters of the book of Judges, there is this explanation of why this happened why the cycle went on and on of, of idolatry and suffering and crying to God and His deliverance and why they didn't learn from history. And there's an interesting explanation in one of those chapters as to why. The answer was this. They had no air of restraint. Now let me tell you what that meant. It meant that in a certain city named Lesh, there was nobody in that city who would say, enough is enough. There was nobody who would stand up and say, this is wrong and it must not be repeated. There was no air of restraint. Now I'm not talking about somebody who is always negative and against something. I'm talking about somebody who is willing to stand up and say, this is the wrong way, this is the right. It's time we said something. It needs to begin at home and with us and with this congregation. And we need to say something to one another. I, um, I was impressed when we had our uh, last Sunday night, student night at Christmas, and all those kids that got up here and talked about how wonderful it was to grow up in this church. I was blessed by that and thrilled by it. And they told, one told how he came to this town and he had nothing and he was accepted and loved by you. And that's what Paul means in Ephesians when he's talking about the spirit-filled life and the spirit-filled church. And he says, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
And that's what the, book, the author of the book of Hebrews meant when he said, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but encouraging one another even so much the more as you see the day approach. A few years ago I was introduced to a little book called The Contagious Congregation by George Hunter. Beautiful, marvelous book. In this book he tells about speaking in a West Texas conference and and, and the, one of the persons who was to bring special music didn't show up, so they had a little testimony time. And he said, a guy got up, and they, they gave these stock testimonies about, you know, the Lord blessing them. And then he said, a hunchback stood up. He said, it was a man with a grotesque-looking body and face, a horrible look, thing to look at. He said, this man stood up and gave a testimony that literally moved him. This was it. It was 10 years ago this month that a Sunday school class in this church took me in. I found a welcome, an affirmation, a support and strength from these Christians that I found nowhere else in the community, including bars. After a bit more than a year of this, I got up one morning and I looked in the mirror and I discovered something within me that had never been there before and has not left since. That morning, I discovered within myself the power to love and accept myself. And ever since that morning, I've been a free man. I thank God and all of you for that freedom. We need to say something to one another. And we need to begin today like, I love you. And I appreciate what you've done for me. And I respect you. And I want to encourage you. It's what keeps us going. And we need to say something to Him. It's called praise and thanksgiving. And it is amazing how often the Bible is couched in the language of praise and thanksgiving and in the command to do it. And if I err as a pastor, I want to err on the side of praise. And if I make a mistake, I want to make it in that I praise too much and not too little. Jack Taylor was right when he said, there is no human experience that is more worthwhile in heaven and earth than praise. For that which gives the angels full-time occupation in eternity and all heavenly visitors is not a waste of time, for he said, Praise is where God lives, and He longs for it. And He waits for us with our mouths to praise Him and to thank Him. It's where He dwells. And so a mother and a father were teaching their child one day at the dinner table, the states and the capitals. And they got down to Hawaii, and the little girl said, Honolulu, that's it. And her brother said, I knew that. Little brother. You ever had a brother like that? No. I, I knew. He said, I learned that at Sunday school. She said, you learned the states at Sunday school? And she said, yeah, we, we, sang, every, we sang every Sunday morning, praise ye the Lord, Honolulu. <laughs> that's, that's not bad. Maybe, maybe it's praise ye the Lord, Oklahoma, or praise ye the Lord, Durant. 
It's time we started to remember to praise. All right, point one. We need to say something with our lips. Point two. We need to say something with our lips that comes from the heart. Now I reiterate that the problem that God had with ancient Israel and Jesus had with the Pharisees was not that they were saying nothing. The problem was that what they were saying didn't come from the heart. What you say to one another needs to come from the heart. It's one thing to talk about a concept of love. It's another thing to have a capacity for it. And what you say to him needs to come from the heart. Peter Lord says that praising the Lord that doesn't come from the heart is like kissing a girl with her eyes open. <laughs> You've probably done that. I mean, you kiss a girl and you kind of peek and she's got her eyes open. You know that her lips are in it, but her heart isn't. I mean, it's just not there. And praising God that does not come from the heart, says Peter Lord, blame him for that definition, is, is kissing a girl with her eyes open. Now what does it mean when he said, his heart is far from me? I don't know all that means, but I do know it means this. It means that somehow something had gotten into Israel's life that was bigger than God. When your heart is far from him, it means among other things this, that something is bigger than God in your life. I'll not allow anything bigger than God in my life. Nothing I know, nothing I experience, nothing I own, nothing I have. I'll have nothing in my life, no fear, no joy, no love, no worship that's bigger than God. For he said way back in his Decalogue, you will not make grave images, graven images, and have them as gods. For what we say to God, He wants to come from our heart. It's from our heart that we, where we believe. It's from our heart that we worship. It's from our heart that we obey. It's from our heart that we give. No wonder the psalmist cried, Create in me a clean heart. Now why is it that some people want to tell God all of this stuff from the lip they don't mean? Well, I think it's because we want, it's, our, it's our attempt to con God. Your kids ever do that to you? You know, when a, when a, when a child comes and says, Dad, you are so wonderful. You, you losing weight, aren't you, Dad? Man, you're, look, you're looking good. Man, Dad, you, you are about the best father in the whole wide world. I know something's about to happen, don't you? you know, con, the con job has just begun. A few years ago, I had a dog named Freckles. Freckles the Wonder Dog. And one time, Freckles got a little sick. And I took her to a vet, and the vet said, you need to do a little worm, deworming job on Freckles the Wonder Dog. So they gave me these big old huge capsules of uh, medicine. And so what we do is that you, 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 you poke them down their throat. Well, it didn't work. One shredded finger 
will teach you that there's a better way. So I checked again with the vet and she said, well, put, put the worming capsule in her food. So I thought, well, that'll work. So I got the Alpo and I put the worming capsule in there and I put it out for Freckles, the wonder dog. And she walked up and I swear to God it's true. She sniffed at that and looked up at me and, and in dog language <laughs> said, are you kidding? <laughs> are you kidding me? Are you want me to eat that? What kind of a con job is this? And God said, are you kidding me? Save your breath. I'm pretty hard to con. And what we say to the world needs to come from the heart. Because the question the world asks is this, is he really one of us is he really with us? Does he share the same joys and fears and needs that I have? Is he really for us? I want to know, does this guy really mean this? And so somebody took a friend, lost friend, to hear George Truitt preach. And when they left, the man said, I didn't believe a word he said, but the thing that impressed me was he believed it. One last word, please. The church needs to say something and we need to say something that comes from the heart and it needs to be in concert with the life. Now Zorin Kierkegaard is a, a Danish existentialist and Danish existentialists don't make um, the Baptist standard or the Baptist messenger. But Danish existentialists like Zorin Kierkegaard have a profound impact on the thinking of the church. This is what he said. He said, there is, a lack of there is no lack of information in a, in a Christian community. But there is a lack that no one can directly communicate to another. Now let me just say what he said. He said that the world has heard all that we have, we have to say. I mean, the world is bombarded with information, but there is something that, that cannot be communicated from the pulpit and from your lips. And what he was talking about was credibility of the preacher how one is perceived, what he, does what he say, says, does that match how he lives? He's talking about what Emerson calls the authentic sign. Now the problem Jesus had with the Pharisees was not that they didn't have the correct verbiage, but what they were saying didn't come from their heart. It was learned by rote and it didn't match up to the way they lived. When you watch Sybil Shepherd say on television that you ought to eat beef, do you believe that? Let me tell you something about Sybil Shepherd. 
she's a vegetarian. And she's telling you to eat beef. And when you watch an athlete or an actor or an actress get on television and tell you that you need to use this deodorant or that toothpaste, do you believe it? What I want to do is ask them. I do. I I wonder if they really do eat that, chew that, wash with that, use that. I mean, does that really fit the way they live? And a college instructor of of cheerleading got up behind a pulpit. uh, No, wouldn't be a pulpit. (laughs) I don't even have a talk. Got up behind a lectern, and he was talking to these candidates, these cheerleaders that had come to this college campus for this week of learning how to do cheers and all. And he made he said this. He said, "There's been a." A, a revolution in, in cheerleading. He said, it's not nearly the same. We don't do, actually do cheers now mainly. We do uh, acrobatics and gymnastics. And he said, these tricks are difficult and they're dangerous. And he said, we're here to tell you how to do them safely. And if you'll do them exactly like we tell you to, it's not dangerous, you'll do them safely. Then he limped off the stage. <laughs> and the way he walked raised some serious questions about the way he talked. So do you and me. And I got this call, true story, this week. I wasn't going to bring this up, but I got carried away. And this lady said, I'm not going to tell you who I am. I don't think it's really the best thing to do. But she said, I want to know if it was all right to go out tonight to a club. I said, well, which one are you going to? <laughs> she, said, she said, she told me one. I said, yeah, I'm going to be there. She said, oh, you're not? I said, yeah, I'm going out there. And she said, oh, you're kidding. She said, you don't go to club. I said, well, why is it all right for you to go to a club and not me? You, you answer that question. There are some things that can't coexist. By the way, I, did, I wasn't planning to go out there. But, but there are certain things, there are certain things that cannot coexist. When I was pastoring out in West Texas, there was this guy, this, uh, this physician. He, he was a laid-back guy, and he loved to farm and raise cattle. He got in a heap of trouble one night. On an emergency, he went into the surgery room with the barnyard on his boots. It is not possible for Jimmy Swaggart or anybody else to preach against immorality and live in it. And it is not possible for us to say anything to the world that will make any difference unless it lines up with the way we live. And so God says, read my lips. And what he had on his lips, we don't want to hear. He said, hypocrite. Repent. Now there are things that this world needs to hear from us. I need to hear it. 
And a lost world needs to hear it. And if they don't hear it from you, they'll never hear it. If you don't share the gospel with a lost world, nobody else will. And if you don't encourage your brother instead of criticizing him, nobody else will. I'll tell you what, everybody else is after him. And if you don't start praising God and thanking Him, nobody else will. But before you get started, it needs to be that everything that's bigger than God in your life needs to be put out, put aside. Tear down, the Bible says, the strange gods. And somehow there needs to begin to be the practice of the matching up of what we say and how we live. If that doesn't make sense, nothing does. Let's pray. Our Father, may this prophetic word find response that pleases you. For I pray in the name of Jesus and for his sake.